in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We'll be looking at the end of this chapter this morning, verses 26 through 40, as we continue our walk through this book of 1 Corinthians. This is Building Up the Church, part 3, and our key words for our worshipers in training are peace, women, and order. 1 Corinthians 14, we'll look at the end of the chapter, verses 26 through 40. Now, as we've looked at up to this point in chapter 14, we've noticed that the key to understanding the entire chapter is this idea of edification that Paul has continuously been talking about through uh, this chapter. So Paul is concerned with the building up of the church. He makes reference to that in verses 3, 4, 5, 12, and 19. And then he will mention it again as we look today in verse 26. He's constantly making mention of building up the body, edifying the body. As we look back over the broader range of chapters we've seen, chapters 11 through 14 are all referencing the corporate gathering of the church for worship. What does it look like as the entire church comes together? And in this context, Paul addresses the spiritual gifts, particularly of prophecy and tongues, because the Corinthians had that all messed up. They were using uh, sort of gibberish as they were trying to employ this gift of tongues. Those who did not have the spiritual gift at all wanted to be showy and to present themselves as something other than what they were. And it was causing great chaos and great confusion. The Corinthians were busy about building up themselves and were not at all concerned with others. They were seeking an emotional experience over and above the worship of God. And they were all trying to speak in tongues. They were all standing up trying to say something. And there was just complete chaos going on. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians to correct them. And if you recall, he is giving them the truth that prophecy is far superior to this gift of tongues. Because prophecy is a direct word of God that they were delivering. And he told us, we saw last week, he was telling the Corinthians to grow up, to stop acting like children, to desire the greater gift, namely to be able to edify others by pursuing love and utilizing the gifts that God has given for the building up of the church. He told the Corinthians that this chaos that was going on was leaving unbelievers who may have come into their presence to think that what was going on was absolute madness. But on the contrary, those who were using the gift of prophecy properly were seeing unbelievers convicted of their sin, repenting of their sin, being edified within the church, The gospel was being advanced by the word of God going forth and being proclaimed. Very much like preaching is to be used today. So the entire focus of chapter 14 has been pursue love. We saw that in verse 1. How do we do that? Use the gifts that God has given to edify or to build up the church. Now we've talked about this edification several times. What exactly does it mean? 
to edify, is to promote spiritual growth or to develop the character of a believer to the place of maturity. So in other words, my interaction with you and yours with me is that we are seeking to develop the character of one another. We are seeking to promote one another's spiritual character. Sometimes that's through encouragement. Sometimes that's through um, exhortation. Sometimes that is through accountability. Whatever it is, we're seeking to build up one another, to edify other believers. We see this as the major element of the gathering of the people of God, uniting our hearts in love to edify other believers. Paul makes mention of this several times in the scriptures. First Thessalonians 5.11, he says, encourage one another and build one another up. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. In Romans 15, 2, Paul writes, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And so we see two implications of this edification. The first is that a believer is never acting selfishly. What is done by the believer is never out of selfish pursuits. They're always looking to the others. And secondly, and perhaps obvious, is that we are together. We cannot edify one another if we are not together, if we're not gathering. Not simply on the Lord's Day for two hours or so but rather in our lives throughout the week. We are spending time in one another's lives. So this was the instruction that Paul was giving to the church. It was not happening in Corinth. He was giving them correction. They were self-serving in their pursuits. They lacked concern for other people. They were trying to build themselves up. Now, something I think it's important to understand as we look at this passage of Scripture, the the Bible, especially in the New Testament letters, never calls for action on the part of a believer without first laying down a theological foundation. In other words, particularly the Apostle Paul will say, since this all is true about God, then the result is this in the life of a believer. So for one to rightly and consistently glorify God with their lives, they must first understand the foundation, the theological framework in which all that is to be worked out is to happen. So the Bible never says do this, not that, etc., etc., without first giving a reason. The Scriptures give the doctrinal basis first and then gives a call to action. And we see that very thing in chapter 14. Basically, the first 25 verses of what we saw were the theological foundation. And now we see the practical implications of that in verses 26 through 40. So there's an exhortation calling for a response to the doctrine that was given. So let's read verses 26 through 33. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. There it is again. 
If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or, th- or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So Paul is giving them some basic instructions about worship. His main focus comes up again. Let all things be done for building up. Now, Paul here gives us some insight into what was going on in the worship of the early church. This is not exhaustive. He does not give a whole rundown of everything that was going on. This is not an order of worship. It's a, rather maybe a random mention of several things that were going on in the corporate gathering, particularly uh, to address what was not going on or what was going on wrongly within the Corinthian church. So, for example, Paul does not mention the reading of scriptures or public prayer. He only mentions uh, that there's singing going on, that there's teaching and proclaiming of the Word of God. Uh, Teaching and revelation are most likely related to the exposition of God's truth. He says if there's a tongue, it's to be done with interpretation. We've talked about what that means over the last several weeks. Now, we believe and we hold to what is called the regulative principle of worship. Let me help you with that is to find in our confession of faith in chapter 22. It says, this is what we are to engage in. Prayer with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship is by God required of all men. But that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and when with others in a known tongue. The reading of the Scriptures, preaching and hearing the Word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper are all parts of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to Him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. And so this is an explanation of what we understand the Bible to be teaching as a whole in terms of the worship of God's people corporately. And so Paul gives some insight into what was and wasn't going on in Corinth, but does not exhaustively give all the information in terms of what is to be done. We see that as a whole in Scripture. God has commanded in the Bible how He is to be worshipped. We are not at liberty to add to that or to take away from that. And so no place in Scripture do we see, for instance... There's a place or a time in the corporate gathering of God's people that we would have some sort of drama or skit or that there would be some sort of interpretive dance or finger painting or whatever. 
God has commanded how it is that we are to worship Him. We are not to add to that. We are not to take away. And so as we look at the whole of Scripture, we see how God desires to be worshipped as we gather as a people of God. In part, that looks like we sing together, we teach the Scriptures, we hear the revealed Word of God being proclaimed, we read the Word, we pray together. All of these things are part of what God has commanded. Now, some would look at this passage and argue that Paul is sort of encouraging this sort of spontaneity here. That we all come together with something to share and it all happens in the gathering of the church. But remember the context. In part, this sort of spontaneity is the very thing that Paul is trying to correct. They were all coming together. They all had something to say. They all wanted to stand up and and speak their words of encouragement. Or they all wanted to sing a song or whatever. And it was just absolute chaos. But likewise, at the same time, some of them had the gift of prophecy. Some of them had the true gift of tongues. And each was revealing a direct truth from God. And therefore, there were several within the congregation that were to speak. Truth was being revealed to the church for the first time. They did not have the completed word of God. And therefore, there were those who were to give that for the first time. So what is the principle here for us? Simply that the requirement to gather today for edification is the same as it was for the Corinthians. That our purpose as we gather is the worship of God and the edification of one another. We use our gifts to edify. We worship in an orderly fashion because God is a God of order. And we'll look at that in just a moment. This is not a performance. What we do here is not this seamless performance. Things go wrong. Things happen. It's okay. We're here to do things excellently excellently unto the Lord, but it won't always happen perfectly, and that is okay. We're here to edify. We're here to build up. We're not here to put on a show. It also should be noted here that the church should have times in its life where the church does gather to encourage mutual edification the stirring of one another to love and good deeds outside of this corporate gathering as we are right now. And so we have things like Sunday school, like small groups. That's why we encourage hospitality in our homes. That believers are getting together to encourage one another, to ask questions of one another, to challenge each other. All of these things should be going on in the life of the church. But what we have here is the Corinthians all rushing in together Presumably speaking over the top of one another. So someone would stand up on one side and start speaking in some gibberish while someone on the other side would stand up and say, I have a word from the Lord. And someone up front would stand and say, I have a song to share. And all of this was sort of going on spontaneously in the worship of God. No wonder unbelievers would walk in and say, this is absolute chaos. There's no order to this. And so Paul is correcting this. He gives guidelines for orderly worship, specifically pertaining to the use of tongues and prophecy. Now, we've talked about these two over the last several weeks, so I won't spend much time on them, but a few principles. 
In verses 27 through 28, he gives three stipulations on the use of the speaking of tongues in worship. First, we see that the gift is to be regulated. In other words, a person with the true gift exercises control. They're not rolling around on the floor. They're not flopping around. They're not spacing out and passing out. A true manifestation of the gift of tongues, as with all of the gifts, can and ought to be controlled by the one who has the gift. It is to be regulated. We see Paul giving that instruction. Secondly, we see him saying that only two, at most three, are to speak in some unknown tongue. And it must be done with interpretation, which is his third stipulation. So there is to be an order. One will get up, share what they have. They will sit down. It will be interpreted. And then the next. This is to eliminate the chaos. The speaker is heard. It is orderly. There's not some underlying mumbling going on in the background as someone else is speaking. All of this is very common today if you uh, are uh, ever a part of a group of people who still seeks to uh, do these same things um, in worship today. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of mumbling. There is very little interpretation, if any. And as we have talked about, um, most importantly, because uh, as we believe, and we have uh, tried very hard to show over the last several weeks, that these gifts are not, in effect, uh, in use today. God has fulfilled His purpose in these gifts, and therefore, they are no longer to be employed in the church today. But nevertheless, for the Corinthians, he does give the instruction also that there is to be interpretation. If there is a tongue, it must be interpreted intelligibly because it is necessary for edification. That is the key, the edification of the body. If there's no interpretation, there's no one there to interpret. The one who has a tongue is to sit and meditate on God's word, to pray, to be encouraged, but to not speak out. Again, this points to one's control over themselves when their gifts are to be utilized. So these are the stipulations he gives in the use of tongues. In verses 29 through 32, he speaks similarly about uh, instructions for the use of prophecy. He's telling them to not give uncritical acceptance to whatever you hear. This is very important for us today. This is the same instruction that John gives in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. The Corinthians obviously did not get this because in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he rebukes them again for this thoughtless acceptance of hateful, evil, false prophets that came into the church. So they didn't get it, obviously, the first time he wrote to them. So in these verses, Paul is telling the Corinthians to hold on to what is good, to toss out whatever is bad, and that other prophets in their midst are to test and weigh what is being said. What does that look like today? That we use God's prophetic word, namely the scriptures, to test that which is being proclaimed. God's truth is fully revealed in the Bible. So, 
All of us have a requirement upon us as believers to search the Scriptures for ourselves. We have the privilege of having the Word of God, and therefore we must use the Word of God. We must search the Scriptures. So just because I or anyone else, any of your favorite preachers, preach something, that does not mean we uncritically accept it without examination. Search the Scriptures. This is especially important with those who are dynamic and are very popular preachers because it is so easy to be moved and to be convinced by their influence. It is imperative that we are only moved and influenced by the Word of God. So I'm not saying that we are to sit with some sort of skepticism, but we are to sit with an open Bible to ensure that there is no deviation from the truth of God. This is the same with any books you read or even the uninspired study notes in your study Bibles. We must examine them ourselves. So let me give you seven criteria for testing. I'm just going to give them to you. I won't explain any of them. They should be self-explanatory. First, does the Word glorify God? Is what is being said glorify God? Second, Is it in accord with the rest of Scripture? Third, does it build up the church? Fourth, is it spoken in love? Fifth, does the preacher or the teacher submit to others' judgment? In other words, are they open to others' correction if perhaps they have something wrong? Sixth, is the preacher or teacher in control of themselves? And seventh, is the fruit of the Spirit evident in the speaker's life? And so these are some criteria that we uh, can and should use in discerning and testing what is being proclaimed. Now, in this, I am often asked what I think uh, or why I think um, perhaps why televangelists and these um, prosperity clowns are so successful. Why are they so successful in what they're doing? They're preying on the poor. They're preying on the elderly. They're preying on the uneducated. All they have to say is, God told me that you are supposed to send money to me. Or, if you sow a seed into my ministry for $1,000, God will bring you great blessing if you have enough faith. What's going on? Well, no one in their midst is testing what they've said. No one's challenging their claims. No one's pointing back to the Word of God. No one is using any discernment whatsoever. They simply esteem these men, and in many cases women, so highly that they never question them at all. They simply buy into what they're saying, never search the Scriptures, do whatever they say, and make shipwreck of any faith that they may have had. And the result is manipulation and arrogance and dishonesty, a corrosion of humility, an absolute destruction of a follower's spiritual maturity. They're following false teachers to hell because they're not stopping to consider what God's Word actually says. 
All that is needed is that people would submit to the truth of God's word specifically in regards to worship. And we'd put an end to this mess. But nevertheless, many simply want to be told and do not want to search and therefore show a grave condition of their hearts. So for tongues and for prophecy, Paul gives some pretty simple principles in how they're to be used in corporate worship in Corinth for edification, for the building up of the body. Edification is the focus and no one is edified by disorder. No one is edified by chaos. And Paul sums this up in verse 33. Look at it again. He writes, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, this is truly the key to how all of this chapter works for the building up of the body. Namely, that the service of the church should manifest the character of God. All that we do as a church should display the character of God. So Paul's point is that God is a God of order. God is a God of beauty and peace and truth. And so our worship, our gathering should be the very same. As we gather, we gather to reflect the order and the beauty and the character of God. So God is orderly and peaceful and systematic, not chaotic, not out of control. We must express the same in our worship. And so that goes with all that we do, our singing and our music. As much as is possible, it is beautiful. Our prayers are heartfelt and consistent with the Word. Our giving, we're called to do with joyful hearts. As we preach and teach, it's filled with truth and that is Christ-centered. As we interact with one another, we strive to be encouraging and edifying. All of this is a reflection of God's character and what we as the people of God should be aiming for in our worship. Because God is a God of order, we must display His character in all that we do and all that we are. Moving on to verse 34 and 5. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Look at the time. Let's go. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Now a reminder. I didn't write the letter. I'm just the mailman. (laughs) I'm just the messenger delivering this. Paul moves on to a discussion of women in the gathering of the church. Now, many will look at this and will say, well, this only relates to the Corinthians in their culture. It doesn't apply to us today because we have a higher understanding, a better understanding. We respect women more than they did. It has nothing to do with respect of women. In fact, the Christian church was looked down upon in their culture because of their high regard for women. But at the end of verse 33, how many how many churches does Paul refer to in giving this instruction? As in all the churches of the saints, all 
What churches are included in that? I know we're Reformed, but all means all. All the churches are included in this. That means us. Paul's instruction emerges from two different things. First is that there was chaos in the Corinthian situation. He was seeking to bring that into order. And secondly, God's character as shown in created order. So verse 34, again, the women should keep what? Silent. So no doubt in the Corinthian situation, there was great chaos and that chaos included women who sought to usurp the authority of men that God has given them within the church, specifically in questioning or judging the prophets. So there was no submission, but they were bursting out. They were attempting to take over this whole thing that was going on in the corporate worship. So no doubt in Corinth there were also men who were guilty of the very same thing. But Paul points to women specifically because of the created order of God in which women are called to submit to male headship, primarily to their husbands. Now, God has gifted women in many wonderful ways. They are equally beneficial to the church as men are. They're only given a different role within the functioning of the church. It is not that of proclamation of the word and leadership of the flock. Paul refers to the law of God in this, pointing to the fact that this is a creation principle. This is not something he just simply came up with for the Corinthian situation, but this is a principle from creation, from when God created man. Namely, that man was created first, woman was created from man to be his helper. Paul teaches us elsewhere, Ephesians 5. He looks in the home, he says that husbands and wives are together to submit to the Lord. And a man's submission to the Lord manifests itself in leadership within the home. A woman's submission to the Lord manifests itself in following the leadership of her husband. It's a beautiful order that works very well when we submit first unto the Lord. This is God's created order. We must submit to this and not to a cultural understanding which plays into the very curse upon women that we see in Genesis 3.16. Remember, God told Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. It does not mean you will have some sort of attraction for your husband. What that means is that she will want that which her husband has called has been called to do and pursue. In other words, you will want to take over his role. And likewise, in his sin, he's going to sit back and do his thing and be lazy and watch you do that. That's what happened in the garden, right? Who was tempted by the serpent? It wasn't Adam. He was reclining under a tree, reading a book or something. Eve, her husband wasn't there. He wasn't there to protect her, to keep her from walking into that sin. 
And when God comes and seeks them out, who does He call on? Adam. Adam, where are you? What have you done? This is your responsibility. And so we see from the very beginning that there will be a constant struggle in which a woman will desire to take over the leadership role of her husband. Eve will have the sinful desire to oppose Adam, to assert leadership over him. Likewise, Adam abandons his affectionate, loving care for his wife and he has a sinful, distorted desire to have domineering rule over his wife or to simply sit back and let her do whatever. And then we see these same sinful desires brought into the order of the church. So Paul addresses this, pointing back to creation, and he says, this is God's design, this is God's order. Women, we see through the Scriptures, are subject to their husbands or, if not married, to their fathers. And this carries is to carry into every sphere of life including the church. So if a woman is to speak prophetic words, she is speaking the very word of God to the church. Thereby, what is happening is that she's assuming the role of authority over men, which is contrary to God's created order. Additionally, in our context, the Bible limits the role of those who would proclaim the word namely pastors and elders, to men. So the role of submission for women is not violated when this happens. We see the same instruction in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses four, uh, 11 and following. Paul writes to Timothy, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Wait, that must be cultural. No, it's not. So Paul continues on in verse 13. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. This isn't cultural. He's saying this is creation. This is how God ordered things. Therefore, we must follow that. And so you might say, all right, what about 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5? You remember that sermon? Two of you. Glad to know it It was so wonderful. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. And so, what's going on here? Because it seems to be that Paul is saying that women can pray and prophecy in the gathering of the church in chapter 11, but then in chapter 14, he says, not so. Is Paul a schizophrenic? What's going on here? There is no contradiction. Chapter 11, remember, is dealing with submission and for women dealing with head coverings. That was another very comfortable sermon to preach. Now in this, the occasion arose for women 
to encourage the body and to pray in the corporate gathering of the church when under authority. In other words, they're not off on their own causing chaos. They're not springing up and saying, I have a word from the Lord. No, they were under the authority of their husbands. They're under the authority of the church. And so really, chapter 14 is addressing something altogether very different. He clarifies his statement. He's saying the value and the place of women in the church as written in scriptures is radically different from the world in which Paul lived and wrote and is radically different in the world in which we read and learn. Taken as written within the framework of worship, only men are to speak as it pertains to the proclamation of the prophetic word of God, namely the scriptures. This is not a role that God has given to women. And it is a burden to women to have to assume that role because God never intended it. Now, I say all of this and acknowledge the fact that there are many women, even in our congregation, that are excellent, excellent teachers, excellent students of the Word of God. And they should be busy using their teaching gifts to teach other women and children at the right place at the right time. It is not a lesser role. It is a great role. It is a much needed role but it is not during the corporate gathering of the church. Does this mean that men cannot learn from women? No. I've learned from many women. It's just not given that their role is authority in preaching the Word of God and judging, in the Corinthian context, the prophetic word in the corporate gathering of the church. But I think there's a bigger problem than that in the church today. I don't think that that is a problem, but I don't think that's our main problem. I think the problem in the church today is inept, lazy, irresponsible husbands who are master statisticians when it comes to their favorite sports teams, but absolutely clueless when it comes to the Word of God. And you can ask him the score of all of yesterday's football games and who made what play, and he'll talk to you for hours on end. You ask him about the Bible, absolutely clueless. This is a problem. This is a huge problem in the church today. And men, if you are like this, if this is you, you're depriving your wife, you're depriving your children, and it is absolutely shameful. Verse 35 says what? If there is anything they, the women in the church, desire to learn, let them ask whom? Their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So anything they desire to learn, who are are they to ask? Their husbands. Or if they're not married, their father. So by implication, men, what does that mean? It means that we know the Word of God. 
We study the Bible with our families. We lead out in spiritual conversations. We seek out answers to our families' questions. We take time to assess the spiritual condition of the home. And we seek to lead them into godliness. When we do not do this, we leave our wives very few options in terms of her being able to grow, to flourish the way that God has intended. This is all part of the fall, that men are lazy. You're not a man because you belch and watch football and kill animals. You are a man when you know the Word of God and you seek to lead your family, your wife and your children in godliness. We have too many 40-year-old boys in the American church. We need to snap out of it and be men and do our jobs. Our family's spiritual health depends on it. Let us be godly men who love and cherish our wives and our children rightly. So they don't even have to desire this role of leadership in any way. It's not even a temptation in their lives. Because we fill that role appropriately as God has called us to. We never put our wives in a position where they feel like they need to make up where we are lacking because we are simply lazy in our responsibilities. We must fight this tendency. Lastly, Paul gives warning. Verse 36. Was it from you that the Word of God came? Or... Are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. So Paul is saying, essentially, do you... Corinthians, you want to argue about all this that I have written? Did you write the Bible? Do you have a monopoly on the truth? He's being very sarcastic here. If you want to argue about this, then you're arguing with the Word of God is what he is saying. And so all of your chaos, all of your disruption, all of your trying to essentially make up these spiritual gifts to put yourself on display is an argument against the Word of God. And so he sarcastically says, did you write the Bible? I don't think so. Verse 37, he's telling them you cannot sidestep what I'm saying. He acknowledges here that what he is saying is God's Word. In other words, Paul, as the apostle, is saying, I am an apostle of the Lord, and what I am saying is the equivalent of the Old Testament Scriptures that you, Corinthians, have at this point in time. I have equal authority with all the rest of the Scriptures, is what he tells them. You must follow the Word. And so for us, the instruction is that we can't be, as many would say today, that they are, uh, you hear often people would say they're red-letter Christians, right? You know, those Bibles that have Jesus' words in red letters to make them stand out. Some will say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm a red-letter Christian. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means I only really pay attention to the words of Jesus. 
Well, Paul is saying that all of Scripture, and he says this later in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful, for, uh, is profitable for teaching and rebuke and correcting and training in righteousness. And he says here, this word I am giving you is the word of God. And so it is equal in authority with the very words of Jesus. So in other words, Paul is saying you either wrote the Scripture or you're required to submit to it. You have one option or the other. And so none of us wrote the Scriptures and therefore he calls us to submit to it. And so Paul says, if anything is said or done that disagrees with what I've written, toss it out. It's garbage. All exposition must be tested against the Lord's written command. And in verse 38, if anyone disagrees, ignore him. Ignore him. And he closes, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. He's talking about the true gifts of prophecy and tongues here, which we've discussed at great length. And so some would look at this and say, see, Paul is saying that we should not prohibit the use of the speaking of tongues in the church today. Well, I think we've argued quite extensively where from all the scriptures we show that we must first look at what Paul is saying in the context of the Corinthian situation. And secondly, that the scriptures seem abundantly clear that this is not something that is functioning within the congregations of God today. And so theoretically, if there were tongues today, would we let it happen? Yeah, sure we would. Paul tells us right here to do so. But... They're not functioning for the church today. We have God's word. His word is complete. He has fully revealed himself. And therefore, we rest on the completed canon of Scripture, the end. We need no other word to be given outside of what God has given in the Bible. We must remember the context. Lastly, he says, let us do all things decently and in order. Let us in our worship display the character of God. Let us in our lives display the character of God. And as we come together, we're uniting our hearts, we're uniting our minds. And as we worship, God's character is on display. The body is built up. There is order. There is not chaos. And all are edified. The church is built up. There is great encouragement. There is great challenge from God's Word. This is what the Scriptures call us to. Some very tough, very difficult words today. Let us meditate on God's Word. Let us discuss this in our homes. Let us be challenged by the Word and transformed by the Word and not by our culture. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the instruction that we receive. Because You, Lord, have been gracious to reveal to us what You desire of Your people. We pray, God, that You help us to be submissive to what You have commanded. 
that we not read into your word our own understanding. It's deadly. Father, rather that we would submit to what you have commanded because it is good and right and perfect. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a people who loves your word, who submits to your word. Father, I pray for us as a body of believers that you help us to display your character of peace and order and love in our worship. I pray for the women in our church, Father, that they would understand the place that you have given them, the wonderful role that they have to fulfill in the body of Christ. For men, Father, I pray that you help us to understand the role that you have given us in leadership, to lead our families and our homes, to lead the church, to know the Word of God, to know the spiritual health of our families, and to minister to them as you help us. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people who does all things with the desire to honor you, to make much of you, to display the glory of Christ in our worship, in our gatherings, in our homes, in our lives from day to day. Father, you are good to have given us Christ. We pray that that is reflected as we worship together, that we would overflow with joy because of what Christ has done on our behalf, what he does in bringing us together to unite us one to another as we proclaim as we pray, as we sing, as we are transformed by your word. We thank you, Lord, and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.